Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, rape, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Judy Dull was the perfect model. With big, round eyes and golden hair, she was the beautiful starlet Harvey Gladman had been waiting for. He circled the 19-year-old, snapping photos. After a few poses, Harvey turned away for a moment to rummage in a bag. When he faced Judy again, he was holding a coil of rope and a gag. But the teen didn't bat an eye. Harvey had already explained that the photo shoot was for a true detective magazine, so Judy sat still as the photographer wrapped the cord around her wrists and ankles, nodded it expertly, and sat back to admire his handiwork. Then the 29-year-old picked up his Roloflex camera and pointed it at Judy. She tried to look afraid, as though a killer was in the room with her. But if she'd known the truth about Harvey, she wouldn't have had to pretend to be scared. Seeing Judy bound and gagged, Harvey could hardly contain his excitement. This was exactly how he liked his women. There was only one problem. She wasn't nearly frightened enough, but he knew how to fix that. Harvey set the camera down and pulled out a gun. At first, Judy was confused by the prop, but when she noticed the look of hunger in his eyes, she realized nothing about this photo shoot was fake. She tried to scream, move, anything, but she couldn't escape her binds. It was everything Harvey had hoped for. He grabbed his Roloflex again and aimed the lens at his prisoner. Her clothes were disheveled, tears streamed down her eyes, and her elbows stuck out at odd angles as she struggled in vain. He snapped the picture, finally the perfect shot. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we'll explore the disturbing world of Harvey Glattman, the glamour girl slayer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. In the first part of this episode, we'll follow Harvey's unsettling childhood interests, as well as his frantic string of crimes and assaults in his early adulthood. Later, we'll watch as Harvey lures young models into his home with promises of fame, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Can you believe this year's halfway over? So much has happened. Time flies. Sometimes you go, 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 and you look up and six months just flew by. I'm still hoping to get some traveling in this summer and see my family. So important. Even with everything going on, it's important to remember to slow down, take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. Personally, it helps to have an allotted hour a week where I can stop and think about myself. 
things I'm working on, issues that come up, and refocus on goals I'm working towards. You can work through anything, not just major traumas. Self-care is not selfish. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Photography is the perfect way to freeze a moment in time. You can look back on your wedding day to admire every detail on your fiancé's face. Or relive the pride of walking across a stage on graduation day. The click of a camera can preserve your most intimate, precious memories, all to be tucked away in a photo album. But knowing that a picture paints a thousand words, do you ever think about what secrets lie between the pages? For years, the Glattman family's photo album was filled with snapshots of their son. Young Harvey playing in the attic, attending meetings with his Boy Scout troop, holding his first camera. At first glance, the Glattmans look like a happy family. But with the benefit of hindsight, the photos tell a much darker story. Born in New York City in 1927, Harvey's immigrant parents, Ophelia and Albert, worked hard to give their son a good life. And at first, things were perfect. Harvey was a sweet, normal baby. But all that changed when he was three or four years old. Harvey's mother, Ophelia, walked into a room one day to find her son in a horrifying position. Harvey had stuck one end of twine in a dresser drawer and wrapped the other end securely around his penis. He was leaning back, so the taut string pulled his genitals, and he seemed to be experiencing pain and pleasure at the same time. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. A 2010 study published by American Family Physician found that it's normal for children to engage in certain sexual behaviors. For boys two to five years old, touching their own genitals, trying to look at people when they're nude, and standing too close to others are fairly common habits. 
However, masochism, which is sexual arousal through one's own pain, is extremely uncommon in children. According to the DSM-5, the average onset age for masochistic tendencies is 19. It's unclear why Harvey first started using twine to satisfy himself in this way, and Ophelia was understandably shocked. Still, she tried to forget the incident. Ophelia likely believed her son was too young to really know what he was doing, and that it was just a one-time thing. What she didn't realize was how much that one act of pleasure and pain meant to Harvey. For a long time, it appears that Ophelia didn't catch Harvey in any abnormal sexual situations. However, she did notice that he seemed to enjoy pain, whether it was inflicted on himself or others. But apparently, she still didn't feel like it was serious enough to do something about. So she just kept an eye on him, waiting to see if he would grow out of his strange behavior. The next few years passed without anything remarkable happening. Then, in 1937, Harvey and his family moved to Denver, Colorado. It was a big change for the 10-year-old, and one that was reflected in his behavior. His parents noticed he became more shy, especially around girls. He also seemed sullen and withdrawn most of the time. Wanting to provide their son with more social interaction, Ophelia and Albert signed him up for the Boy Scouts of America. But while his fellow Scouts found adventures and friendships, Harvey was only interested in one thing. Between knot tying, tent assembling, rock climbing, and other outdoor activities, Harvey developed an obsession with rope. He started carrying around a length of cord with him at all times, tying and untying knots. He loved the way the coarse line felt as it slipped through his fingers. And this may have been more than just fascination. It's quite possible that Harvey developed an early fetish for ropes. A 1946 article published in the Psychoanalytic Quarterly observed that when people develop fetishes around an object from their childhood, it often stems from the sensations of smell and touch. Harvey's connection with rope might have started when he was a young child, from the pleasurable sensations of wrapping twine around his penis. Even if he didn't know what he was doing back then, the feeling of rope likely remained locked in his subconscious, and he wanted to explore the feeling as much as possible. We don't know exactly when or how, but at some point in his youth, Harvey discovered autoerotic asphyxiation. Using a rope or cord, he choked himself while masturbating with his free hand. When people are deprived of oxygen, they experience dizziness, lowered inhibition, and euphoria. Obviously, this can be incredibly dangerous, because without oxygen, people can pass out. Then, once their body goes limp, the rope can strangle them to death. But Harvey wasn't concerned with the dangers of his new habit. Mixing masturbation with his rope fetish was the best feeling he'd ever experienced, and he couldn't get enough. Eventually, his parents noticed the marks left by his new activity, but he wouldn't tell them where he got them. They soon found out, though. When Harvey was about 11 years old, he was hiding in the attic, completing his asphyxiation routine when his parents walked in. It was likely similar to when Ophelia caught Harvey as a young child. But this time, Harvey's parents weren't going to let his incident slide. They decided to take him to a doctor. But the physician didn't have any advice for the concerned family. He told them that the asphyxiation was just a phase and that Harvey would grow out of it. Harvey's parents had no other option but to hope that the doctor was right. But instead of leaving his unusual behavior in the past, Harvey only spiraled downward. 
As a scrawny preteen with acne and ears that stuck out, he lacked confidence and didn't seem to have the social skills to make friends at school. He also had no idea how to talk to girls and avoided his female classmates as much as possible. Instead, he withdrew into solitary hobbies like film, music, and photography. Still, something was missing. Harvey was antsy and wasn't content with such passive activities. He wanted a thrill. Once he reached high school, he found some more destructive ways to pass the time. First, he got into petty theft. Specifically, he started stealing items from distracted women. This might have been the first sign of Harvey's mental health disorders. He was later diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychopathy. As we've discussed in the past, the latter closely aligns with antisocial personality disorder, which might have been at play here. According to a 2015 study published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry, ASPD can manifest in socially irresponsible and impulsive behavior, including theft. This could also explain Harvey's inability to form relationships, romantic or otherwise. It's possible that he stole from women because he didn't know how else to interact with them. At least this way, he had control over them and the situation. Over time, Harvey became more confident with his thieving, but he wasn't satisfied for long. He wanted more. So the high schooler began breaking into homes. He loved the feeling of being somewhere he shouldn't and pocketing goods that belonged to someone else. It didn't even matter what he took, cash, household items, whatever he could get his hands on. During one burglary, he even came away with a handgun. Perhaps it was the weapon that gave him his next idea. When robbing houses left him wanting more, Harvey decided to add a new terrifying step to his break-ins. One night in 1945, the 17-year-old gathered his coils of rope and the stolen gun, then took to the streets of Denver. He strolled around until he spotted a woman walking home alone. We don't know who this person was, but Harvey didn't steal her purse. Instead, he followed her to her house. Once she opened the front door, Harvey rushed up behind the woman, pointing his weapon at her. He forced her inside and tied her up with his rope expertly twisting and tying it. He unbuttoned the woman's shirt and assaulted her while pleasuring himself. Once he was done, he untied his victim and took off into the night. The incident stayed in his mind long after the night was over. Harvey wanted more. We don't know how often it happened, but Harvey started going out to look for more vulnerable women to attack. It's unclear how many victims he assaulted during this time, but at some point in the spring of 1945, his luck ran out. One day, he followed a woman home and tried to break in through her window, but before he could force himself inside, she called the police. When the cops arrived and caught Harvey, the teenager immediately surrendered. They took his gun and ropes while he admitted to having broken into other homes, but he didn't mention the assaults. Luckily for Harvey, it seems the police didn't make the connection. We don't know if his earlier victims didn't report their assault or if officials simply failed to tie the robberies and the attacks. Either way, they only charged him with first-degree robbery. After that, his parents posted bail, and Harvey was once again free to roam the streets. However, while Harvey's recently graduated classmates made plans for college, all he could think about was his next attack. 
One summer night in 1945, 17-year-old Harvey drove around a Denver suburb. As he cruised down a dark street, he spotted a woman who will call Kathleen walking down the sidewalk. He pulled up beside the young woman and forced her to get into the car. Terrified, she did as she was told. Though Harvey usually followed his victims back to their house, he didn't drive Kathleen to her home. For whatever reason, he wanted something different that night. Instead, he drove about 40 minutes north to Sunshine Canyon, a wilderness trail near the city of Boulder. Then he forced Kathleen to walk two miles into the hilltops. As a former Boy Scout, Harvey had likely been getting to know the various hikes and wilderness areas. Perhaps he had always thought about dragging a girl to the hilly meadow, where he and Kathleen stopped. According to media accounts, he then tied Kathleen up and assaulted her. Once he was done, she waited to see what he'd do next. But strangely, Harvey just sat back and stared. Harvey watched all night as Kathleen struggled to get out of her binds. Finally, as the sun started breaking over the horizon, he freed her hands from the rope. She tensed herself to run or fight, but she didn't have to. For some reason, Harvey decided to get Kathleen a cab. When the taxi arrived, they went their separate ways. Harvey had gotten everything he wanted out of Kathleen's kidnapping, and he didn't know what else to do besides send her home. Clearly, he wasn't thinking about getting caught. Kathleen likely had no idea just how lucky she'd been, because once Harvey realized how dangerous it was to release his victims, he'd never make that mistake again. Coming up, Harvey finds the perfect way to trap his victims. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an ax you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. Now back to the story. After 
After years of sexually compulsive behavior, assaults, and criminal acts, 17-year-old Harvey Glattman kidnapped and sexually assaulted a young woman in the summer of 1945. But after holding her captive for the night, he let her go. It may seem curious for Harvey to release his victim like that, after he'd spent an entire evening with her, because surely she'd report him. But Harvey had gotten all that he needed from Kathleen. Experts have identified several different types of men who sexually assault women. They're typically motivated by power, reassurance, or anger, and will sometimes display sadistic or ritualistic behavior. We know that Harvey had a history of sexual sadism, and it seemed that he liked having power over others. But he wasn't angry with Kathleen. He felt sexual gratification, watching her struggle against his ropes, yes, but he wasn't interested in seeing her die. He had nothing against her, so he let her go. Harvey's choice backfired immediately, because Kathleen reported the kidnapping to the cops as soon as she got home. It's unclear how authorities tracked him down, but it didn't take long. The police arrested him for the kidnapping and assault. In November of 1945, he was found guilty for his crimes and sentenced to one to five years behind bars. Although his family was horrified by Harvey's detainment, prison seemed to be easy for the 18-year-old. With no rope and no women, he couldn't give in to his urges. So after about eight months, he was let out for good behavior in August of 1946. Hoping a change would help Harvey straighten out, Ophelia moved with her son to Yonkers, New York, to be closer to his childhood home. But the change in scenery did nothing to stop Harvey's nighttime prowling. After so long behind bars, he was desperate to lash out. Within a month of gaining his freedom, he packed up his rope and a toy gun and went looking for trouble. On or about the evening of August 17th, Harvey spotted a man and a woman taking a romantic moonlight walk. Though he hadn't attacked a man before, he likely thought his toy gun would help subdue him. As he drew closer to the couple, Harvey pulled out the fake weapon and pointed it at them, ordering them to follow him into an alley. There, he used his rope to tie up the male victim. Then he turned to the woman. He started unbuttoning her shirt, assaulting her as she whimpered in fear. Her companion strained against his bounds, desperate to break free. Eventually, he got one of his hands loose. He tore the rope away and lunged at Harvey. Harvey was prepared for this, though, and pulled out a pocket knife. He slashed at the man, catching him in the shoulder, which gave him just enough time to sprint away. That same night, the 18-year-old jumped on a train to Albany, New York. But he wasn't content to get out of town and lay low. Harvey had waited eight months for the thrill of the attack. He was determined to get his way. Only a few days later, he spotted nurse Florence Hayden walking through Albany on her way home from the hospital. He ran up behind her and jabbed his fake gun into her back. Florence pleaded for mercy and offered Harvey all the cash she had. He took it, then forced her off of the lit street and into someone's yard. There, he pulled out his rope and started tying Florence's hands. At first, she was too scared to move. But then, Florence noticed that her attacker was using both hands to tie the knots. He'd put his gun down. Realizing this, she pushed Harvey as hard as she could and screamed for help. Panicked, Harvey fled the scene, leaving Florence free to go to the police. But Harvey wasn't bothered by this setback. 
The next night, he held up two middle-aged women and tried to rob them. Perhaps because they were older than Harvey's usual victims, he didn't attempt to assault them. In fact, he didn't seem to know what he wanted from the pair. When they didn't have much cash, he settled for their small change and liked it. This impulsive holdup came back to bite Harvey quickly. The women reported the attack to the Albany police, who were already on the lookout for Florence's attacker. Harvey couldn't control himself long enough to lay low. Two days after his mugging, he went out on the prowl again. But he wasn't the only one stalking the streets of Albany. After so many reports of attacks, the police were patrolling for someone matching Harvey's description. While driving, police spotted a young woman walking alone. At least she thought she was alone. But a short, thin man with large ears was following her. It looked like they'd finally found their bandit. The cops pulled Harvey aside and made him empty his pockets. Once they found the rope, knife, and toy gun, it was over. In October 1946, Harvey was convicted yet again, this time for assaulting Florence. The 18-year-old pleaded guilty and was sentenced to five to 10 years behind bars. Harvey was eventually sent to Sing Sing, a maximum security prison. While in custody, he received a thorough psychiatric exam. After hearing about his urges to tie women up and assault them, as well as his impulsive crimes and tendency to isolate, the doctor diagnosed him as schizophrenic with psychopathic traits. This diagnosis noted that Harvey's psychopathy and schizophrenia was made worse by perverted impulses, which explained nearly every inch of Harvey's criminal past. The reckless stealing, his urge to dominate women, and the string of sexual assaults. With a medical diagnosis in hand, it seems Harvey easily tolerated prison. He cooperated with doctors, got along with guards, and completed all of his prison duties with a good attitude. That's probably why, despite warnings to monitor him, Harvey was granted parole after less than three years in prison. He just had to live under parental supervision. By then, his mother had moved back to Denver, and for a while, the reunited family lived quietly as Harvey checked in with parole officers as required. Harvey bounced around odd jobs for a few years. He was fired several times for being arrogant and refusing to follow directions. But working seemed to keep him out of trouble, at least for a little while. Then, in October of 1952, Albert Glattman died from diabetes. The death took a toll on Ophelia, who had to take extra work to make ends meet. But Harvey didn't seem too distraught. In fact, it's possible he enjoyed the extra privacy this afforded him. In 1954, he was given permission to live in his own apartment in Denver, as long as he continued attending parole meetings and had frequent check-ins with his mother. Though his good behavior impressed his parole officers, Harvey may have been continuing his alarming habits in secret. In the spring of 1954, college students from the University of Colorado Boulder stumbled upon a woman's body on the edge of a creek. She was so decomposed that she couldn't be identified, and the case went cold. Of course, there wasn't any reason anyone would suspect Harvey of the crime, though in hindsight, perhaps they should have. But we'll come back to that idea later. Whether he actually laid low or just seemed to, Harvey made a good impression during his time in Denver. And in 1957, the 29-year-old was finally allowed to go where he wished. It was the first time in his entire life that he was totally independent, which thrilled him. 
and he used that freedom to move to Los Angeles. At first, Harvey's arrival in Los Angeles seemed to signal a genuine fresh start. He got work as a TV repairman and found joy in diving back into some of the artistic hobbies he had in high school, especially photography. While it seemed Harvey was getting his life together, he may have had an ulterior motive for his career choice. Under the guise of learning more about film equipment and improving his photography, Harvey began to frequent camera clubs. There, Harvey could hang around and watch groups of photographers crowd around young, nude women posing for the camera. For a few months, he just watched from afar. Maybe he was trying to resist his past sexual habits. Maybe he was biding his time. But eventually, he couldn't hold back any longer. Not once he'd spotted 19-year-old Judy Dull. At some point in late July 1957, Harvey was flipping through portfolios when he saw Judy's picture. She was blonde and beautiful. She was exactly what he wanted. He reached out to Judy, telling her he was a freelance photographer and asked if she'd pose for him. He explained that he shot for detective magazines, which meant she might have to be tied up and gagged for the shoot. She was hesitant at first, but he promised her $20 per hour. Hearing that, she agreed to the deal. On August 1st, 1957, Harvey brought Judy to his apartment, which he'd staged to look like a studio. He tied her up with rope and posed her on a chair, snapping pictures as she pretended to be afraid. However, it soon became obvious that Judy was in actual danger. Setting down his Roloflex camera, he pulled out a gun and pointed it at her. The model froze, confused and scared, which was exactly what Harvey wanted. Moving closer, he started to take off her clothes. But instead of just groping her like he did to his earlier victims, Harvey raped the 19-year-old. Afterwards, he made Judy cuddle against him as they watched comedies on television. In his twisted mind, the moment likely passed for a perfect moment of intimacy. But Harvey couldn't keep Judy tied up forever. Eventually, he picked up his camera again and snapped more pictures of Judy who no longer had to fake her terror. The pictures were the perfect souvenir for Harvey. In their 1996 book, The A to Z Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Professor Harold Schechter and journalist David Everett wrote that when it comes to serial killers who take an item or picture from their crime, there are actually two distinct motivations. If the killer, typically a narcissist, wants to boast about their crime, the item is considered a trophy. However, when the attacker just wants the object for their own satisfaction, it's a souvenir. Harvey was likely the latter type and only wanted to preserve the moment for his own sexual gratification later. Now that he had his memorabilia, Harvey was done with Judy, which meant it was time for the next step. In the past, he may have let her go, but he had learned his lesson with Kathleen and didn't want to risk prison again. Harvey forced Judy into his car and drove her out of Los Angeles. They sped into the desert east of the city. We don't know where, but eventually he pulled the car over and told Judy to get out. He tied her up again and took a few more photos, but he knew he couldn't put off the inevitable. Eventually, he wrapped a rope around Judy's throat and pulled it taut. After a few minutes, Judy slumped to the ground, dead. 
Unable to resist, Harvey pointed his lens at the body and snapped a few more pictures. He wanted to savor this moment for the rest of his life. Coming up, Harvey stages more fatal photo shoots. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. After years of escalating robberies and sexual assaults, 29-year-old Harvey claimed a life in August of 1957. Once Harvey was done snapping pictures of Judy's body, he left her by the road and drove out of the desert back to Los Angeles. Her remains were so far from civilization, he was sure nobody would find them. When he got home, Harvey developed his photos from the day, eager to see the results. Soon, images of Judy's terrifying demise hung all over his apartment. Harvey's photos kept him satiated for a few months. Anytime he felt the urge to go searching for more women, he could look at his apartment walls. But every day, it worked a little less. Eventually, in March 1958, 30-year-old Harvey decided he needed a new victim. For some reason, he tried using a different approach to find his next target. He signed up for a Lonely Hearts Club in Hollywood. Through this club, Harvey connected with a 24-year-old divorcee named Shirley Ann Bridgeford. He asked her on a date, and she agreed. In early March, Shirley got into Harvey's car, nervous but excited. He'd suggested dinner and a romantic drive out to Sun Valley, a neighborhood north of Los Angeles where they could cruise around. But after making small talk for a little while, Shirley probably began to wonder where they were heading. Harvey coasted down a stretch of deserted highway and eventually pulled to the side of the road. He revealed a gun and told Shirley to obey him. Terrified, she did as she was told. Then Harvey raped her. If the 24-year-old cried out, there was nobody to hear her screams. Once he was done, Harvey drove into the desert. He told Shirley he had to tie her up because he wanted to take some pictures of her to use in detective stories. She had no choice but to comply while Harvey positioned her in a hogtie position. Then he laid out a blanket on the ground and placed Shirley on it. He fetched his Roloflex from the car and shot a few photos. Finally, Harvey used his rope to strangle Shirley to death. Then he left her body in the sand and went home. Although Harvey had photos from this encounter, they didn't last him as long as they had in the past, and he was ready to strike again quickly. Perhaps this was because the more he killed, the more he wanted to. In July 1958, about four months after Shirley's murder, 24-year-old Ruth Mercado placed a classified ad in the Los Angeles Times. She was seeking work as a model. Harvey read the ad and contacted Ruth, and the two discussed working together. 
According to Harvey's later accounts, he immediately liked Ruth, and it wasn't just about her looks. Talking with her was easy. In his head, they'd made a connection, and he decided he had to have her. So he offered her a job, promising to call in a few days. On the night of July 23rd, 30-year-old Harvey visited Ruth at her apartment. Based on court records, Ruth opened her front door to this seemingly harmless photographer, who pointed a gun at her and told her to go to the bedroom. Panicked, she followed his orders. Then Harvey raped Ruth, and once he was done, he ushered her into his car and drove into the desert in San Diego County. For some reason, Ruth was the hardest to kill for Harvey. He liked her, and perhaps he hoped that the intimacy between them, though forced, might have been real. But no matter what he felt, Harvey knew what he needed to do to avoid prison. He pulled into an isolated stretch of land and hogtied Ruth. He took more photos, then wrapped his rope around her neck. He pulled tight until Ruth stopped breathing. Then he left her there and drove away. Once he got home, he added Ruth's pictures to his stash, which he started storing in a toolbox. He'd realized it was too risky to have them out in the open where anybody could see them. But he could look through his toolbox whenever he wanted, and he seemed determined to fill it up. In late October, three months after he killed Ruth, Harvey called a 28-year-old model named Lorraine Vihill. It's unclear how he got her number, though it seems likely he found it while flipping through modeling agency portfolios. Returning to his original explanation, Harvey said he needed a woman to pose for a True Detective magazine and asked if Lorraine was interested. She agreed and gave him an address where he could pick her up. Harvey drove out to Lorraine, but as she got in his car and they peeled away, Lorraine realized they weren't heading in the direction she expected. It seemed like they were heading into the desert, not a studio in Hollywood. She started to panic. Lorraine's fear was validated when Harvey stopped on the side of the road and pulled out his gun and a rope. He tried to tell her she wouldn't get hurt if she followed his instructions. Unsurprisingly, she didn't trust him. When Harvey moved to tie Lorraine's hands behind her back, she lunged forward and grabbed the barrel of the gun. In the chaos, the gun went off. A bullet sliced through the air, grazing Lorraine's thigh. She screamed in pain, but refused to stop fighting. By chance, a California state patrolman was driving nearby and likely heard the gunshot. He sped toward the sound to find Harvey and Lorraine still struggling over the weapon. The officer handcuffed Harvey on the spot and took him into custody. Once he was in jail, Harvey didn't try to explain away his actions. In fact, he gave them his name and described the attack in a straightforward manner. The interrogators pressed Harvey about other missing women, suspecting that he had attacked people before Lorraine. Without much of a fight, Harvey admitted that, yes, he had murdered a few women. He said if they found his toolbox, they'd see exactly what he had done. It's unclear why Harvey was so forthcoming. Perhaps he figured that since he'd been caught red-handed, pleading guilty and being cooperative could only help his case. While he was questioned, officers visited his L.A. apartment and searched for the toolbox. Once they found and opened it, they were horrified to see the photos of various women tied up, crying, or lying lifeless on the ground. They brought the images to Harvey to sort through, among the victims, he pointed out Judy Dull, Shirley Ann Bridgeford, and Ruth Mercado. 
But there were four other mysterious women in the photos. Harvey identified two of the women as models from Denver. He claimed that he did photo shoots with the women, but didn't kill them. We don't know what Harvey said about the other two unidentified women, but it seems police never learned who they were or what happened to them. The next step was to find the bodies of his California victims. Following his directions, police drove Harvey around various deserts near San Diego. He told them where to stop and look for the remains. Soon, the police had discovered both Shirley and Ruth. With that and the evidence collected in the cases of Judy and Lorraine, the authorities had all the evidence they needed to nail him for murder. A month later, in November of 1958, Harvey pleaded guilty to murder. His devastated 69-year-old mother, Ophelia, reportedly flew in from Denver to beg for her son's life. She told anyone who would listen that he was sick and needed help. However, a psychiatric exam determined that Harvey was sane enough to know right from wrong. With all of the evidence, plus Lorraine's testimony about her ordeal, a judge decided that life in prison wasn't enough. Harvey was sentenced to death. Officials shipped him to San Quentin to await his execution. In the end, Harvey said that it would be better if he died. Less than a year later, that's just what happened. 31-year-old Harvey Glattman was executed on September 18, 1959. And though a feeling of relief swept through Los Angeles, it seemed that his work was still not done, even beyond the grave. The same year, Harvey's photos of his victims were published in an actual detective magazine in an article all about his crimes. In a macabre twist, the models did end up in a true detective magazine, just as Harvey promised. And their effect was something no one ever could have seen coming. In Wichita, Kansas, a 13-year-old boy read the article, fascinated by the images. Something about the terrified women gagged and bound awoke something in young Dennis Rader. He masturbated to the pictures, his first true step to becoming the infamous BTK killer. Years later, he would bind, torture, and kill up to 10 women. And it potentially started with Harvey Glattman's photos. But Harvey's story didn't end with Dennis Rader. In 2009, 50 years after his death, experts used DNA testing on the woman's body found in Boulder, Colorado, way back in 1954. They identified the woman as 18-year-old Dorothy Gay Howard. Given that Dorothy's remains showed up in Boulder, Colorado, where Harvey had kidnapped one of his first victims, her death rang new bells for investigators. Authorities now suspect that Dorothy may have been Harvey Glattman's first murder victim. Just like his photos, Harvey's crimes lingered long after he was gone. But if there are more secrets held in the snapshots of unnamed models, it seems unlikely we'll ever find out about them. They're stories that Harvey took to his grave. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Spotify.